Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. I've been doing the podcast for about six years, and in that time I've interviewed historians, anthropologists, sociologists, and of course political scientists. And for the most part, political scientists write about beginnings and endings and responses, why genocides happen, how the international community might respond, why genocides conclude. But I don't recall ever interviewing a political scientist about the Holocaust specifically. And I don't remember talking with many political scientists who use that discipline to address different kinds of questions. And it's precisely this gap that Evgeny Finkel is looking to fill with his new book, Ordinary Jews, Choice and Survival During the Holocaust. In the book, Evgeny looks to understand and explain why individual Jews uh, responded to the threats of the Holocaust in in, in ways that are predictable. Um, But but he also hopes to persuade readers that political science is a valuable and appropriate tool to use in understanding the Holocaust and in other genocides. It's a fascinating book, um, one that I had a hard time putting down, uh, and one that I found both informative and convincing. And I'm looking forward to talking with Evgeny about it. So with that, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. So uh, we always start by asking our guests uh, just to say a little bit about themselves. Um, how did you become an ap- academic? Why did you become interested in political science? Um, and how did you end up at Johns Hopkins? Oh, so... How did I become interested in politics? I guess a lot of it comes to do has to do with my personal history. I was born in Soviet Union in 1977, mm-hmm. so I'm the last Soviet generation. I lived through the collapse of the state and also happened to be born on the Western borderland, so the most nationalist, anti-Soviet mm-hmm. parts of the state. So I saw the collapse. I saw the collapse, I saw the mobilization that preceded the collapse, you know, as a child. And then in 1990, my family moved to Israel, so I grew up in Israel. And, you know, it's hard to find the more political <laughs> and politicized place than Israel. So with that, with that combination of interest in history and politics, I became I became a political scientist. I also became a political scientist because I was pretty bad at everything else. Actually, my original background is in electronics <laughs> engineering. It was mostly for my parents, who are you know hardcore Soviet technocrats, and they almost got a heart attack when they figured out that I'm serious about going into social sciences. So I made a deal with them. I got my degree, gave them the diploma, never touched it. <laughs> So that's how I be- that's how I became a social scientist. How I became interested in the Holocaust. Well, this book is an outgrowth of my of my PhD mm-hmm. dissertation, and it was a story in how not to write a dissertation because it was a series of mistakes. I never intended to write the book. I came to a PhD program at the University of Wisconsin in Madison with a clear idea that I want to work on, you know, post-communist democratization, bureaucracy, human rights, and that stuff. And during my first semester, I met one of the professors at Wisconsin, Uh Scott Strauss, who wrote extensively on the genocide 
in Rwanda and I got completely hooked on that. So I started moving more towards violence and genocide, but still it wasn't there. It wasn't the book or the dissertation that I intended to write. I wanted to write on uh, the impact of genocide on state building and how the experience of genocide affects politics later on by looking at Israel, Armenia, Ukraine, maybe Kazakhstan that also had a famine. The problem was that I couldn't get any funding to do fieldwork, so I needed to write a dissertation without leaving the U.S., and I figured out that, you know, as an Israeli who speaks Hebrew, Russian, Polish, Ukrainian, and has all the archives that one needs in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., I will switch from the memory to the Holocaust, of the Holocaust to the Holocaust itself. Not that, you know, I wasn't interested in the Holocaust. It's part of my family history. It's part of who I am. But the plan was never to become a Holocaust scholar per se. And that's how I think, that's how this book was born out of a series of, you know, changes, mistakes. But that's not a book that I originally intended to write. If there are graduate students listening, uh, I think that's actually the truth for many dissertations. Uh, I've heard, I've done about a hundred of these and I've heard that some version of that story retold dozens of times. Um, and, and, and I should say for a long time listeners, uh, Scott Strauss has been on the show, I think three times, and you can go back to the webpage and find those uh, if you're interested in listening to those. Uh, Evgeny, you start the conclusion of your book uh, by quoting Charles King, I believe, uh, who asked, can there be a political science of the Holocaust? Uh, so maybe we'll start by asking you uh, what, what a political science of the Holocaust would be and why there wasn't one until now. Oh, well, there was one. I mean, Holocaust studies started as political science. If you look at people who created the discipline and most notably the great mm-hmm. Roald Hilberg, he's not an historian. His PhD mm-hmm. is in political science and he spent his entire career in the political science department at the University of Vermont. If you look at people who also shaped our understanding of the Holocaust quite a lot, people like Friedlander or Goldhagen, mm-hmm. for better or worse, or Jan Thomas Gross, they're social scientists. Mm-hmm. They're not historians. We just think of them as an historians because they were pushed out of social sciences mm-hmm. into history. So, so the story is the progression of you know this uneasy relations between Holocaust and social sciences, empirical social sciences, not you know more political theory or moral philosophy, but empirical data-driven social sciences. The Holocaust is that. Our attempts to understand the Holocaust started as social science. If you look at Hilberg's explanation, it's a, it's a theory about how mm. bureaucracy and how modern mm. states operate. It's not history. It's not history per se. The problem is that after several years, history and Holocaust studies and social sciences went into different directions. And the perception in social sciences was for many years that Holocaust is I don't want to use the word useless, but it's outside of you know the typical universe of cases that social sciences can understand. The perception of Holocaust being unique and inexplicable certainly did contribute to that. But if you are a social scientist doing cross-national large and work as the discipline looked like for many years then, Holocaust has pretty little mm-hmm. to add to to our understanding 
of politics, those required languages that most people in social sciences did not speak. And on the other hand, Holocaust studies moved firmly into history, humanities, literature. So there was very little dialogue between the disciplines, but it changed. It changed several years ago. And now we see a new wave of interest in the Holocaust in social social sciences. I'm not the only one doing this type of work. There There is an entire cohort of people in social sciences, in political science, in sociology, doing empirical, quantitative, or mixed quantitative and qualitative work on the Holocaust to a degree that hasn't existed for many, many years. In fact, only a couple of years ago, the American Political Science Association annual conference has the first had the first ever panel on the mm-hmm. Holocaust, which to me was a bit mind blowing. But we are there. We are not there yet. I think there is quite a lot we need to do. But there is an interest, a renewed interest in the Holocaust in social sciences mainly because social scientists started paying attention to what we can do with the Holocaust and that to focus on individual or cross-national, or sorry, uh, or sub-national variations. So instead of looking at the Holocaust as a whole, just disaggregating it into a series of events that can be compared and can be looked at to compare communities, to look at different to look at stuff that can be quantified. Because after all, Holocaust is a gold mine of data that we can use. The problem was that very few people in social sciences even knew that this mm-hmm. data exist and had the languages and the regional skills to handle that. But it has changed. So I think Charles, I think Charles King's uh, article was, you know, one of the, the one of those pieces setting the stage for this for this attempt to integrate Holocaust into social sciences. And I think right now there is a political science or social sciences of the Holocaust. There must be just mm-hmm. too important to be ignored by social scientists. I don't want to say that it's too important to be like historians. <laughs> I mean, I, I admire historians, and I think of myself now more of an historian doing quantitative mm-hmm. work rather than a social scientist. But we certainly, we in social sciences, certainly did ignore the Holocaust, and that needed to change, and it has changed. So let's just set up your specific book. Um, what 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 question or questions are you trying to answer in? in in this book, Ordinary Jews? So so the book tries to answer two separate but related questions. One is why and how Jews targeted by the Holocaust chose their survival strategies, what choices did they make, and why, what caused them to make those choices and to adopt different types of behavior, because not everyone acted the same. And I wanted to see if those patterns, those differences in behavior that we see, whether they are random or whether there are some patterns that can be uncovered at the individual level. And another related question was the difference in behavior, types of behavior across communities. So why mm-hmm. in some communities we saw resistance to the Nazis, while others while others did not have any resistance attempts, why levels 
of evasion. So people trying to escape from the community, differ from one place to another. Why one community had more or less, more or less people, fewer people collaborating with the Nazis. So both they, what made people, individuals make those choices and also the differences in aggregation of choices across communities. So I wonder this, you, you talked about evidence um, and, and the kinds of evidence that political scientists have access to. So could you say a little bit about the research project for this book and, and um, how you identified the kinds of evidence you wanted to use and, and, and how you made that legible, those kind of, that evidence legible? So I think what social scientists can bring to the table that historians do not use and are not trained to use is the focus on variation. We are trained to spot differences, even small differences in otherwise similar settings, and then exploit those differences to make broader inferences. A typical social science project would not be one case or one community or one event analysis as historians often do we compare. So the first step was to decide what exactly I'm going to compare. And here I decided that in terms of analytical leverage, if I want to understand how differences across communities or how people behave, I cannot look at camps because Mm -hmm. camps were a completely different universe. Very few people actually experienced life in camps and and camps would not be a good would not be a good solution for me. So for me, what so I decided that I need to focus on the ghettos, uh, this intermediate stage between the beginning of the Nazi occupation and people being either killed locally or shipped to the camps, and to look at those to look at what's going on in the ghettos because in the ghettos we have we still have existing community and family and social structures. That they want that they wanted to uncover. As a political scientist, I was more interested in political factors and mm-hmm. how how political explanations or political realities explain how people behave, and that was hard to do in the camp. So I decided to focus on the ghettos and needed to choose the specific ghettos on which I would on which I would focus because doing it on the entire universe of cases would obviously be impossible even though I do some quantitative analysis in the book. And I decided to focus on three ghettos that were similar in many respects, like size, percentage of Jews in the community, the duration of their existence, but differed in outcomes. People behaved differently in those ghettos and also differed in politics before the war, because eventually I link those choices that people make and the distribution of choices to pre-war politics. And I decided to focus on one Soviet Soviet Jewish community that was Minsk, the, the capital of Belarus, one in Poland, and that was Krakow, which was in, a part of the Second Polish Republic up until 1939 and then was occupied by the Nazis. And a third community that was in between was Poland before 1939, but was controlled by Soviet Union during the two-year period between the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and Operation Barbarossa, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, and that was Białystok. So we had one community that was during the interwar period 
in Poland and then immediately occupied by the Nazis, a community that was Polish, but then under Soviet control and then occupied by the Nazis and Minsk means a community that was firmly under Soviet control up until 1941. And what I tried to do is for each of those communities to look at testimonies in different languages from different periods. Luckily, I had the tools to do so because I spoke Russian, which was crucial for Minsk, for Minsk, Polish, which was very important for Krakow and Bialystok, obviously, but but also Hebrew, because a lot of those testimonies come from survivors who later on settled in Israel. And with this combination of languages, I could look at how people from different countries, people who moved after the Holocaust to different countries, remember those remember those events, could go to different archives. Eventually, I used data from archives in Israel, the US, Canada, Poland, some stuff from Australia, although although very little. So, so the idea was to look at to look at individual explanations, how people talked after the war about their experiences, also experiences of their families, of people they of people they knew. Holocaust era documents like diaries, letters published memoirs. So everything I could get my hand on, could get get my hands on and and to analyze while knowing that, of course, the sample would be extremely biased. Mm-hmm. After all, survivors are only a small subset of the communities and survivors who agreed to talk and agreed to give testimonies, even a subset of the subset. So, so so obviously it wasn't around it wasn't a purely representative sample of the experiences so it wasn't possible for me to come up with numerical estimates to talk about percentages or to do quantitative analysis at the at the community level because because of the problems with the data and I'm not even starting to talk about the other issues of working with testimonies such as the passage of time and the biases in representation although actually I found that testimonies tended to be very consistent over time. What people, sometimes I could look at testimonies from one person given in Poland in 1946 and in Israel in 1960s and then in the U.S. in 1990s and there would be a remarkable consistency in how they how they narrate what happened to them during the Holocaust. But still quantitative analysis wasn't possible. What I wanted to do is just to figure out broad patterns. What are the bigger picture that I can that can understand based on those testimonies also for the people who survived and also for the people who did not survive the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So that was the kind of data that they use. Most of the qualitative, the historical quote unquote part of the book is based is based on the testimonies. I, I used more than five hundred testimony individual testimonies in the for the book. In, ad- in addition to the various Holocaust-era documents, yeah, it's you, you, it's remarkably well sourced. Uh, I, I wonder if so. Many of them, as you said, are written sources, but but many of them are video sources. So I wonder if you could talk about the experience of using video sources um, 
compared to more traditional, maybe not traditional anymore, but historically traditional kinds of documents like diaries or, or letters or something like that? So it is different. It was different for me, first of all, on the emotional level. Yeah. When you read stuff, it's, it still strikes you. It still hits you. It will mm. still give you nightmares, but in a different way from looking at people and their faces on the screen. Using audio, videos, audio and video testimonies also allow to look for people's expressions or figure out when they stop to think of how they react to different questions, something that is not possible when you work with written materials. Now, sometimes it's just, it's just language issues. You know, Quite a few of those were given testimonies in their second, the third, or fourth language. Mm-hmm. So when they were struggling for words, it might be their emotional reaction, but it might be you know, the, the, the linguistic issues. The problem with... Uh, the problem with using that type of evidence to make inferences is that when we work with video testimonies, we're also limited in what we see. Mm-hmm. We see what the cameraman decides to shoot, and we see and we see ex- only the times in which the camera is operating. So we don't see what's going on behind the scenes. There are other projects who deal with that and look at the entire length of the testimonies. I didn't do that, so so I decided that I will not. I will not draw any analytical conclusions based on how people speak, what, where they pause, how they, you know, look to the sides when answering questions. Even though intuitively I felt that there is something going on at this at this or that moment, and if that happened, I would dig for more sources or go to or go to written materials to try to find try to find corroborations. So so it was so the main differences were first emotional and also giving you hints, if not exactly data, that will allow you to mm-hmm. to do some more, especially when it comes to sensitive topics, like you know, sexual violence mm-hmm. or sexual relations more generally relations with Germans, collaboration with Germans, suicides, extremely sensitive topic as a as a discover so so that and that you would not see in written sources so you that were, type of reaction no, go ahead. so so as you use these you lay out a scheme of, of several possible responses or courses of actions that that Jews could have and, and others could have taken um, and historically some of these labels or strategies have um, been criticized. So I, I wonder if you could just lay out your, your six possible responses and talk a little bit about what you mean by them and maybe what you don't mean. Right. So, so those are six responses which I divide, or actually more group than divide, into, mm-hmm. four, into several main categories. Mm-hmm. The first category, category was cooperation and collaboration with the Germans, and that's, of course, the most morally sensitive type of response. And here I, decide, I decided that I will use two different, two different monikers, two different typologies for that, I, because cooperation will, and I decided, oh, 
how I view it in the book, both cooperation and collaboration mean working with the Germans. Mm. The difference between those is the goal of those actions. Cooperation was done to save the community or to help the community. People who cooperated usually did it publicly. They were the leaders of the Jewish council, sometimes commanders of the Jewish police. It was part of their official part of their official role. It was part of their duties to try to work with the Germans to represent the community. But while they did work with the Germans and did fulfill their orders, the motivation for them doing so was to help the community rather than to help themselves. Collaboration, on the other hand, was done to help the people who practice this this option, even to the detriment of the community writ large or other Jews. And this collaboration could be open. There were people who openly collaborated with the Germans. Many ghettos had people who informed on other Jews and everyone in the community knew that those people were informers or it could be done or it could be done privately. So both types of people work with the Germans. They just did it for different reasons. And that's why I use this this analytical distinction between cooperation to save the community and collaboration to help yourself or your family or your friends. That was a pretty rare response. Another rare response was resistance. And here I differ from most Holocaust historians who take a very expansive view of resistance. For them, everything the Jews did to stay alive was a part of resistance. Passive resistance of what is called in Hebrew as Amida, standing against the enemy or fulfilling your professional duties if you're a doctor trying to save your trying to save fellow Jews. Most many historians would see it as resistance. I take a more restrictive view. For me, resistance is armed resistance, so organized resistance. You organize to harm the Germans. And that was also a very rare response. And the mo- and most reactions, most responses were two. One is what a one is coping and compliance coping and just trying to survive while staying put and doing whatever it takes to survive breaking laws, bribing, stealing, what, whatever it takes, mm-hmm. but within the ghetto. Compliance was completely passive response. You do what you are told without trying to improve your lot, without without trying to break the laws, without trying to work around the rules. That's what uh, what is known in Holocaust studies as a term going like, essentially going like sheep to the slaughter. Mm. And what I found that it was an extremely rare response. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that, that might be just an artifact of the fact that people who simply followed rules were very unlikely to survive. But I don't think that's the case. I think most people used coping. They stayed within the ghetto and tried to survive by doing whatever it takes, breaking rules, smuggling, stealing if needed, but not engaging in collaboration or cooperation with the Nazis or resistance to the Nazis. And the second quite typical response was evasion, trying to escape trying to immigrate when it was possible 
or trying to escape from the ghetto and hide outside the ghetto, buying fake documents and assuming fake identity as a Russian or a Pole or a Belarusian and trying to and trying to survive outside the ghetto. So those two were the two main responses, evasion versus coping. That's what most Jews during the Holocaust did, at least in the ghettos. So your one of your big claims in the book is that the choices that Jews and I suppose Jewish communities, um, although maybe maybe you don't want to put those two together, uh, made during the Holocaust in response to the violence and to the threatened threatened violence against them uh, depended in large part, not solely, but in large part on their pre-war experience with authorities and with the community, broader communities they were part of. So can you explain that a little bit? Right. So, so the main argument of the book that essentially Jewish individual choices that people made and the distribution of choices across communities were less about the immediate Holocaust era reality. It was less about what the Nazis did, because what the Nazis did was by and large similar mm-hmm. to different degrees, but pretty similar in its essence across communities. What mattered is where you lived before the Holocaust and what kind of regime or what kind of social and political reality I experienced. So what I so what I found what I found that when it comes to the extreme choices that is cooperation with the Germans or resistance to the Germans, these were the more politically active people mm-hmm. that engaged in the, that engaged in those responses. Because they from the very beginning were primed to think in broader political or community mm-hmm. terms. And when it came to those who cooperated, they were also more likely to be assigned those roles because they were already more active in, commun- in communal politics. Mm. The key difference between those two groups was age. Mm. Cooperators tended to be the older generation. The resistors tended to be the younger generation. But if you look at the sociological profile of those people, they came from similar backgrounds, sometimes from the very same family, by the way. And when it comes to the majority choices, that's evasion versus coping, what they figured out that evasion depended most of all on your ability to pass as non-Jew outside the ghetto or have a network of non-Jews who could help you outside the ghetto. Because outside the, escaping the ghetto was not hard. But outside the ghetto, it was almost impossible to survive without having the skill to be accepted by the local Slavic communities, Poles, Ukrainians, Belarusians, as a non-Jew. And then depended on being part of inter-ethnic communal networks. Mm -hmm. Now, where exactly those inter-ethnic communal networks came from, how a Jew could could be friends or be or be familiar with non-Jews or non-Jewish culture or non-Jewish language, it came from what the regime under which the Jews lived before the Holocaust did. If the regime was keen on integrating the Jews into the larger communities by 
integrating school systems, the school system, or integrating the labor market, or encouraging inter-ethnic parties. Well, in those communities, Jews had non-Jewish friends, non-Jewish acquaintances. They could pass as non-Jews linguistically, so they had a better chance. They had a better chance of escaping and to the better chance of surviving outside the ghetto. Of course, it wasn't foolproof. But if you know that you have a chance to to pass as a Russian or a Pole outside the ghetto, then it's worth trying to escape. And you already know on which door to knock to ask for help. Not everyone helped, but the chances were that some might. If you come from a community that lived under a regime that was not interested in integrating Jews and non-Jews that that did not promote inter-ethnic education, that was not interested in integrating the labor market, that in, that invested in, in having ethnic parties or having hostile inter-ethnic relations, then you would stay within the ghetto. Because outside the ghetto, you stand no chance. You will be recognized as the Jew the moment you open your mouth. Everyone will hear your, your, Yiddish, your Yiddish accent. So, and that makes you as good as dead on the spot. So in those communities, you would stay within the ghetto. But the flip side is that within the ghetto, coping and life would be easier mm. because the community, because it was segregated and separated from the rest of the society, would be much more cohesive. So there would be social networks in place to help the sick, to help the poor. There would be lower levels of collaboration with the Nazis because the community could police their own. That wasn't the case in places that were more integrated into Polish and Polish and Belarusian societies. There, everyone, within the ghetto, everyone was for themselves or for their families, but they had a better chance of escaping. And that's how I trace, that's how I trace the argument to pre-war political regimes. In Białystok was part of the Russian Empire and the interwar Poland. And none of those regimes, none of those states was interested in integrating the Jews. So there the the Jewish and the Polish communities were completely segregated. Most Jews in Białystok did not have any social relations with Poles. The vast majority of them did not even speak Polish. So they remained within the ghetto until the very end. Very few people tried to escape. Hmm. Krakow, on the other hand, was also part of the interwar Poland. But before that, it was a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Austro-Hungarian Empire made a concentrated effort to integrate the Jews. So there, even though the relations between the Jewish and the Polish communities were not always friendly, most people spoke Polish most people had non-Jewish classmates or patrons of their businesses or co-workers, and they had a better chance to survive outside the ghetto, passing as non-Poles or receiving help from non-Poles. And what amazed me completely when I look at that is the, the, who were the people who sheltered Jews. These were often not close friends or, you know, partners in business. This way, janitors in, in, in schools or school teachers or some distant relatives of distant friends, nannies, if a Jewish family 
had a non-Jewish nanny, then oftentimes this nanny would step would step in and would shelter us. Sometimes the kids, sometimes the entire family with a great risk to themselves. So they had social ties. They had interacting social networks because they because of the Austro-Hungarian policies. And I remind you, Austro-Hungary as a state ended in 1918. So the state did not exist for 20 years before, more than 20 years before the Holocaust. But still, the legacies of those policies still remain. And Minsk was part of the Russian Empire that, like Bialystok, was not interested in integrating the Jews. But the Soviet Union, after the revolution, made a very concentrated effort to integrate the Jews. Mm-hmm. They did it quite forcefully. The, the methods that they used were not benign. They banned Jewish parties. They destroyed the independent Jewish educational system. Obviously, they prosecuted religion, but the outcome was that by 1941, those 20 years of social engineering were enough. And by 1941, the Jewish community of Minsk was very well integrated into the non-Jewish society. So there, people also could seek help outside outside the ghetto and had a better chance of escaping. So so that's really interesting. Um, One of the implications of this uh, at least in one of the ghettos you discuss, is the possibility of people, uh, leaders of the community who are working uh, to cooperate with, with those leaders knowing about and communicating with those figures who were trying to lead a kind of resistance movement, um, despite them having behaviors that are very different. Could you, you say a little bit more about that? Right. So, and then that was most prominent, of course, in the case of Bialystok, mm-hmm. where until the very last moment, the head of the Judenrat of the Jewish community, so the head of the Jewish community, a guy named Ephraim, Ephraim Barish, cooperated very closely with the resistance to the extent that he funded the resistance, he provided them safe houses, he employed known members of the resistance in the in his in his private security in his personal security de- detail, and he did it for two reasons. First, as I said a couple of minutes ago, the main difference between those who cooperated and those who resisted resisted was age. He came from the same background as those guys. He was also a Zionist political leader, a Zionist activist activist in the community. We don't have any evidence, but I'm pretty sure that had he been you know, 20 years younger during the Holocaust, he would have himself joined the resistance. Mm-hmm. So for them, it came naturally. He worked very closely with them, but it wasn't the only reason. I think the other reason was that he was scared of what they might do. Mm-hmm. He wanted, if not to control them, then at least to know what they're up to by cooperating with them and to stay in the loop because he firmly believed that the best way to preserve the ghetto was to cooperate with the Germans, to do whatever the Germans want, to make the ghetto as productive as possible just to prevent the, to prevent the possibility of the ghetto being destroyed. It almost worked. It worked up until August 1943, and the local Jew- and the local German leaders were quite keen on preserving the ghetto. In fact, when the order to liquidate the ghetto came, the Germans 
had to bring people from the outside because they did not trust the local German leadership and the local German police to to carry out the job. So it almost worked. He failed, but his goal was his goal was to prevent any open resistance within within the ghettos. And he knew what the stakes are. He was absolutely confident that the Germans will lose the war. He was playing for time. And he also knew that when Germans lose the war and the Russians or the Poles come back, he will be executed for cooperation with the Germans. And that was sacrifice that he was will- he was willing to take for the sake of the community. So in terms of motivation, the the his goal and the goal of the and the goal of the resistance were aligned. They both worked to save the community. They disagreed on the best way to do so. In the last moment, when the order to liquidate the ghetto came, he betrayed the resistance. Mm-hmm. Well, betrayed probably is not betrayed is 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 not exactly the right word. He he had an agreement with the he did not betray them to the Germans. His agreement with the resistance was that when the orders to liquidate the ghetto come, if and when they come, he will notify the resistance so they would prepare an uprising. And he reneged on this promise. It didn't change the fact that Bialystok did have a pretty large-scale uprising, but in the last moment, his record of cooperation without collaboration went up went up in smoke and he became a collaborator, unfortunately. But mm. up until the very last moment, he and the resistance worked hand in hand. So you talked about expectations, and that seems to be, and, and, and as you point out in your book, to you, a, a, a really critical question. What what did the, the Jews you're talking about, what did they expect of the Germans, and what did they learn about the fate that was guaranteed them? So, so what information did they have? Right. So when it came to write the book, I expected a pretty linear relationship between information that people had and the choices they made that made the choice sorry the choices they made i came to my research with hypothesis that when people finally figured out what the germans were up to they would act in a way that would increase their survival chances or at least change their behavior and i discovered that that was not always the case I discovered that information could explain some cases, but it cannot explain most cases because what the Jews knew was very uncertain. After all, up until January 1942, the Germans themselves Mm. did not know what they're going to do with the Jews. But even beyond that, the amount of rumors and information false or correct flying around was simply astonishing. Moreover, people who had previous positive experience with the Germans, for example, in Krakow, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and many Jews were educated in German, went to German language school, had friends among Germans, fought with Germans in World War I, after all, they could not believe that Germans are capable of killing the Jews. Minsk was under German occupation during, uh, sorry, not during, but immediately after World War I, and it was much better than what the Soviets could offer. So older Jews firmly believed that Germans would bring peace and Orient simply discarded the stories about German atrocities as Soviet propaganda. 
But even when people did discover what the Germans are planning to do and what they're doing based on the evidence in front of their eyes, they often did not change. They often did not change their strategies. In Bialystok, most people by the time of the event of the final liquidation of the ghetto knew about Treblinka. Treblinka was not that far from Bialystok. After all, and people who survived, who jumped from the trains, uh, came back to the community that could tell the stories about Rubinka. So people knew about Rubinka, and they're quite open about that in their testimonies. They say that, you know, we knew, but still it didn't change our behavior, it didn't change how we behave, because bigger factors, more important factors, like the ability to survive outside the ghetto prevented escape. Yes, we knew that Problinka means death, but what could we do? Hmm. If we tried to escape, the result would be exactly the same because we will be discovered as Jews and shot on the spot the moment we open up the, our mouth because we don't speak any Polish whatsoever. So so what I figure out, that information alone cannot explain how people chose their strategy. And more surprisingly for me, that's something that I still cannot cannot explain information on you information did not explain cannot explain why people did not change their behavioral mm-hmm. strategies that's something that, that I think is the biggest weakness of the book at least from my perspective change of strategies I cannot explain unfortunately so you mentioned that resistance was a relatively rare choice uh, I wonder why well it's risky. Mm-hmm. It's uncertain, but more importantly, it is available only to a small subset of people. Resistance, after all, is a full-time job. So if you have a family to support, or if you are a bit older, say, more than 20 or 25, because uh, because past that age, during the Holocaust, you were more likely to have a family, then you are not biographically available to join the resistance. More importantly, you need the skills. You need to know how to do it because otherwise the Nazi security services will discover you on the spot and will shoot you on the spot as a resistance. It requires some knowledge of how to communicate clandestinely, how to acquire weapons, how to hide, how to operate in the, in the underground, what I, what I call resistance skills. And unfortunately, most people did not have those skills because those skills, they're not taught in school. They cannot be learned by reading books. They need to be learned and acquired by practice. And what I discovered is that people who already knew how to operate in the underground before the Germans came, that's communists in Poland because the Communist Party was banned in Poland, or Zionists in the Soviet Union, especially during this two-year period of 1939-1941, in Eastern Poland, those people who learned the skills after more benign conditions already knew how to do it when the Germans came. So they had a higher chance of surviving and higher chance of building durable Jewish underground organizations. Those who tried but did not have the skills because they were not in the underground before, they stood pretty much no chance. They were discovered by the Germans, shot, sent to camps and otherwise eliminated. So the desire was always there. The problem, the issue was being biographically available, only a small number of people could devote themselves to full-time resistance and having the skills to do so. And the skills were also 
an outcome of pre-Holocaust political regimes and pre-Holocaust politics. So you used the term biographically available, and I, I think, and my apologies to you if, if you invented but I believe at least the concept comes from broader political scientists, literature and, and resistance and violence. So, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways in which political scientists who are not studying genocide, um, what kind of ideas and insights they bring to their study of violence that is useful to people who, who are interested in genocide? So I think what political what political science can bring is is our methods and our focus on variation, mm. our attention to small differences in otherwise similar cases, and our appreciation of politics not only as some background noise that's happening in the distance, but something that affects people's lives on the local level and what politics translates into on the local level, being segregated versus integrated schools, inter-ethnic or intra-ethnic parties, and overall relations between the communities. That's, I think, what social scientists, not only political scientists, but also sociologists and economists can bring to the table. New data, new ways, ways of looking at the data and the appreciation of political, social, and economic factors as driving behavior. So I'm wondering, one of, one of the things research like this is does or often does is to provoke new questions. Um, so I wonder if writing this book led you to, to um, a new set of questions or a, or a new set of topics that you thought um, social science could just shed insight into, specifically about the Holocaust. Well, about the Holocaust, definitely. So I think we still have a lot to do when it comes to trying to quantify what happened when it comes to trying to better figure out survival rates Mm. or trying to put more or less precise, even ballpark numbers of different types of behavior. I think there, there is a vast difference between different types of communities. So in my research, I focus on medium sized cities. I'm pretty sure that had I done this research on small towns or villages my results would have been somewhat different. I don't know to which extent they would have been different, but social context and demographic context certainly does certainly does matter. I think that that we can also. It would be interesting to see, at least for me, how my argument, how the same story would play out in Western Europe hmm. rather than Eastern Europe. And there is some work being being done being done on that as well. But for me, more specifically, the biggest question that they came up with is after looking at testimonies and listening to testimonies is what happened to people after the mm. Holocaust. And more specifically, as an Israeli, I became interested to people who came to Israel during Israel's War of Independence, and there. Going back to our question about what I learned from oral testimonies, there surprisingly I discovered silence. Hmm. I discovered people talking a lot about the Holocaust era experiences, about what happened immediately after the liberation. They come to Israel in 1948, and then silence 
and they immediately jump to the period of 1950s. They talk, they say, they mention that they fought in the war, but they don't talk about the war itself. So my next book focuses on Holocaust survivors who participated in participated in the 1948 war. Every couple of months I go to Israel, I try to locate people who are still alive and interview them. It's very challenging, but also a very gratifying project. It's a privilege to still be able to talk to people who are 91, 92, mm. sometimes 95 years old and have bright, lucid minds. And they talk about, not only about the Holocaust, they're used to talking about the Holocaust. They talked about the Holocaust many times. But oftentimes I'm the first one who asks them what happened during the war, during the 1948 war in which they fought. Oftentimes their families themselves don't know what happened to them and they listen with me for the first time when the person recounts what happened to them, how they were treated, what they experienced. And it opens a completely different perspective on what the state of Israel is, how it was created. And I'm still in the middle of collecting my data, but for now, that's why I'm going after this project. That's what this project prompted me to do. So it's so it really resonates with me that you would speak in that kind of language, because while there is certainly a, a rigorous methodology in the book that we're talking about now and it's a sophisticated analysis, but but it's also striking in terms of your storytelling. Um, so I wonder if there's maybe a story, a person's story or a family's story that, and I'm springing this question on you and, 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 and you may not be able to answer right now, but as you were writing this book, if there was, is, was there a story that you encountered in a testimony that, that really rung true to you or made you think about things in a different way or just struck you as meaningful? Uh, well, uh, I will probably disclose what does not need to be disclosed about the book, but the book starts with the story of my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And parts of this, who was a Holocaust survivor, and parts of this story I did not know until I listened to his oral testimony for the first time. And I try and virtually every chapter starts with a vignette from from his story and what his story and his experiences and his Holocaust survival story is not an, is not an, is not usual in many respects. What his story can tell us about the broader question or broader type of behavior that that I am interested in. So, so in that sense, it was very personal to me, more personal than than any than anything else for for natural reasons, and I'm just sorry that I did not watch his testimony when he was still mm -hmm. alive. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, um, and so I always answer the, ask the same question at the end. Um, and we're taping this in mid-August, and on the American academic calendar, that means that school is about to start, but not quite, and I have one more weekend left, which happens to be my birthday, which ought to give me a chance to spend some hours reading a book. Um, would you suggest one or two books or maybe a movie or something to the audience that, that you think they should read or watch that was meaningful, that you think would be meaningful to them? Sure. So I have two book suggestions. One you're probably well aware of, and that's Chris Browning's mm -hmm. Remembering Survival. 
which was very influential for me as I was writing the book. I was writing my own book. The second one is a recent book by Jeffrey Kopstein and Jason Wittenberg. Mm -hmm. It's called Intimate Violence, The Pogroms on the Eve of the Holocaust. It's a it's a recent, very recent book, but it's a culmination of a very of a project that they started many years ago, and they were the ones who opened the door for all, the second wave of quantitative mixed methods Holocaust research mm -hmm. in social sciences. They were the ones who inspired me to do this type of work by showing that yes, political scientists can do the Holocaust can study the Holocaust, this work can be done, and you can actually publish in top political science journals <laughs> and presses by doing this type of work. So Intimate Violence, Cornell University Press, a, a pretty short book. I'm sure it won't take you an entire, an, entire, an entire weekend, but that's probably the best example of this new wave of social science research on the Holocaust. So I strongly recommend it. Well, thank you again for your time. This has been wonderful. And I hope um, once your new project is done, it sounds fascinating. And I hope that um, you'll come back and join us again on the show. Um, but for now, thanks again. And we really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Eugene Evgeny Finkel about his book, Ordinary Jews, Choice and Survival During the Holocaust. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers, or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I'll interview Mark Roseman about his new book, Lives Reclaimed, a story of rescue and resistance in Nazi Germany. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.